I'm Jesse Thorne, host of Bullseye, inviting you to a live taping of my show with my pal, actor and comedian, Paul Shear. It's June 13th at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at laist.com slash events. On Inheriting, Bao Trong was born in the U.S., but he longs for Vietnam, a country his father left behind. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. So how does he tell his dad that? Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Sumi Martinez. This week, a federal judge ordered LA city and county to offer every unhoused person of Skid Row shelter by October. Yesterday, we heard from council member Kevin DeLeon on what this could mean for his district. Today, his council colleague, Nithya Raman, to hear what she thinks of the judge's order and how it could impact districts surrounding Skid Row. That's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn, it's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian school teacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye, inviting you to a taping of my show with my pal, actor, comedian, podcaster, memoirist, Paul Shear. Hey, Paul. That's me. Hey, Jesse. I am so excited to join you to talk about my brand new book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma. We're going to have a great time at the Crawford on June 13th. Come on out. Get tickets now. LAist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm May Martinez, thanks for joining us. Coming up. Every morning when they would walk their kids to school, they would see the trash, the pollution in the streets. They realized this is not a place we would like to have our kids grow up. On this Earth Day, how environmental activism took root in the city, in the town of Pacoima, one of the most pollution-burdened communities in California. That's just ahead. But first, the city of Los Angeles has made some big moves when it comes to homelessness in recent days. On Monday, Mayor Eric Garcetti unveiled a proposed budget of almost $1 billion to tackle the issue. The next day, Judge David O'Carter ordered the city and the county of L.A. to move every unhoused person on Skid Row into some sort of shelter by October. Now, the county is appealing this order. Yesterday on the show, we had on L.A. Council member Kevin DeLeon to talk about the lawsuit and Garcetti's budget. Today, we talked to Nithya Raman, council member for L.A.'s 4th District, who has made homelessness her signature issue. Council member, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So right off the bat, uh, what did you think of uh, Judge Carter's order? Well, I don't know if you had a chance to read this document, but it is an incredible artifact of this moment. I mean, he goes through the entire history of homelessness in Los Angeles, our responses, talks about how we arrived at the situation that we're in today. And honestly, when I was reading it at points, uh, and I have to say, I, I skipped over some parts because it's a very long document. Mm. When I was reading it, there were moments when I just, you know, I, I whooped. I mean, he's identifying all of the problems that have led us to this moment of real crisis in Los Angeles. And, you know, it, it, it's it's really an incredible document. And he offered historical perspective of what this issue means to him. To him. He brought up Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, I, I, I remember reading that. And I thought, wow, so this is something that Judge Carter, I mean, we have already known this about Judge Carter and homelessness, but this is something that he feels deeply personal about. Yeah, he feels incredibly deeply personal about it. And I think he identified exactly those moments in Los Angeles history when this city was making decisions between providing the building the kind of uh, housing we needed or um, the kinds of responses in our criminal justice system to homelessness um, and decided away from providing services instead of uh, policing, uh, decided away from building the kind of housing that we needed in Los Angeles, and I think takes us to task for all of those decisions, which I think is incredibly important to do at this moment. So fair to say you support his order holding the city to task on this? I mean, I think that the 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 urgency and the sense of emergency that he brings uh, to his thinking around this, uh, I share that. 
I think a lot of people in the city do share that. I think residents really share that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that urgency is very welcome. Because I mentioned how we spoke to uh, Kevin DeLeon yesterday. Uh, his, uh, his district is the one that's going to be most impacted by this order, at least however it uh, plays out. What do you think it could mean, though, for your district, Council District 4? Well, you know, there are things in there if the order goes on as as written here. So not not relating to the specifics around Skid Row. There are pieces of the order that I think will be beneficial for all all districts in there uh, in the quest to address homelessness. Uh, The judge asks us to look at all of our city properties and to make sure that we are going through a kind of a emergency assessment of all of these properties to see where resources for those experiencing homelessness can be built, where permanent supportive housing can be built, where affordable housing can be built. It asks the Homelessness and Poverty Committee to identify structural barriers that have caused people of color to to experience homelessness um, disproportionately and to address those issues. It asks us to look at zoning uh, it asks us to declare a state of emergency in the city. So these are all things that I think will help all districts. In the context of what he said specifically about Skid Row and the focus on Skid Row and the urgency on getting people who are living in Skid Row into housing, I think the way it could impact other districts has to be viewed in the lens of the way I have been responding to homelessness now, which is that we have a finite amount of resources in the city devoted to this issue. And so when I am trying to advocate for particular responses within my own district, I'm often advocating within a zero-sum game. And what I want to see is not a zero-sum game. I want to make sure that we are able to respond to the needs within Skid Row with the resources and urgency that we need to, while also being able to house and provide services for the more than 1,000 people who are experiencing homelessness in my district. And Council Member, I, I realize that Skid Row is its own unique part of the city. And, and I know that maybe what happens there or what might work there or what doesn't work there might not apply to other parts of the city um, in, in this case. But when it comes to what you're just talking about, it sounds like you think that at the very least, this could serve as a blueprint for other districts in the city if, if, if indeed everything plays out the way the judge wants it to. Well, I don't know that it would serve as a blueprint because there's so much about the order that is not spelled out yet. You know, I think that there is a lot of potential in the order, but there's also a lot that gives me pause as well. What's the what's the main thing that gives you pause? Well, I think that one of the issues in the order is really about uh, what kind of shelter or housing is being provided to people who are who are experiencing homelessness right now. Is it a shelter bed in a congregate shelter? Is it an interim shelter opportunity? Is it a motel or hotel room that is a, you know, on the way to permanent housing? Or is it a a permanent, you know, a unit of permanent supportive housing? Those housing options are very, very different. And I think even the experience in in Orange County, where the judge worked before, uh, resulted in many people being moved into congregate shelters, which later were found to have, you know, deteriorating conditions and difficulties for for those individuals and a lot of people who could not move from those shelter beds into permanent housing. And so I think how we house is as important as the act of providing shelter and housing. And uh, and so I think it, you know, flooding the zone with 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 outreach, with Mm -hmm. services and with housing is the way to go. Exactly how you do it. that that will determine whether this is a way that we can actually take it forward. So can I interpret what you said in, in, in terms of what you think about the housing that's provided? Is it just the actual structure and thing itself or what it represents at, at what a next possible step from that could be? Well, I think there's a real difference between a, a bed and a congregate shelter, which is uh, which if that's considered to be adequate shelter as as uh, it, it, under this order, to me, that doesn't actually uh, address the issue of homelessness. If you're living in a shelter, to me, you're still unhoused. You still don't have a home. That is not a solution. What I want to get to is a, a place where we're really you know, investing in 
long-term interim housing and permanent housing that can really get people off of the streets permanently, really end the condition of homelessness. And to me, you know, that would be the kind of investment that we that we really need. I mean, the mayor's budget, for example, had a lot more money going towards things like Project Home Key and Project Room Key, which are investments in hotel rooms and in purchasing hotels and motels. Mm-hmm. That is adding to our housing stock here in Los Angeles. That's exciting to me. And those are the kinds of investments and the kinds of ways in which we should be directing our resources in the city to make sure we're having the greatest impact that we can. And council member, I want to ask about that budget uh, in just a second. I want to go back really quick to what you mentioned when it comes to adequate shelter and that definition and what it means. So if if you were to be able to define it uh, for the entire city of Los Angeles, what does adequate shelter mean for Nithya Raman? You know, I want to look at what has worked to help people get off of the streets. And when I look at the recent months and the success uh, of of getting people into Project Room Key, for example, which has been criticized rightly for some of the limitations around it, but offering non-congregate shelter options, a room with a door that you can close, that really works. That's appealing for people. That's easy for people to accept um, when they're when they're experiencing homelessness, and and I think it's it's a great way to uh, to provide an interim housing option that really you know meets the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Doesn't that require more space, uh, a different kind of commitment that maybe the city can't afford, or the space that maybe we don't have? Well, we've been looking at some innovations in this space that I think are promising. Uh, you know, there are these tiny homes uh, where. Uh, that are being that are coming up in different places. The uh, Vignus facility that was built by Supervisor Solis, where the units are smaller but they are private, um, and and they I think these units, uh, the, you know, in, in those facilities, if done correctly, can be very very dignified places for people to live. It, you know, if done correctly, that's always the that's always the the question. But but I do think that we have good options that are not. Um, uh, that are not necessarily just congregate shelter beds. We're talking to L.A. City Councilmember Nithya Raman, who represents the 4th District. Uh, all right, so to that budget, uh, the mayor announced this week a budget of almost a billion dollars to tackle homelessness. And the big priorities are permanent housing and more funding for care, uh, plus encampment cleanup. So what what did you think of his budget proposal and the items it uh, prioritizes? Well, there's a lot of money in there that's actually money that's being spent on permanent supportive housing. So that's money coming from... HHH. So it's, you know, over $300 million is going towards finally, you know, actually constructing many of the units that were promised when HHH was introduced a few years ago. And that's really exciting. Every unit that's built through HHH means another unit that someone can move into permanently and can move off of off of the streets. There's a lot of money in there for things like outreach, for eviction prevention, for um, uh, uh, for services. And all of this is, I think, you know, very, very welcome funding at the at the council district level. For example, in my own district, I have actually supplemented our outreach dollars in this district with with our discretionary funds so that we can get the kind of uh, interactions that we need between outreach workers and people experiencing homelessness that can actually kickstart the process of moving people uh, into services and into housing. And we needed to do that through our own funds. And hopefully with this kind of investment, we'll actually get that that money from the city itself. Have you gotten any reaction or questions or pleas from your constituents in District 4 to, to do some of the things that Mitchell Farrell did at Echo Park Lake? You know, I think <laughs> you are always asked to... to um, to clean up encampments. That's a constant request. I mean, every caller, every other caller calling into a city council meeting is calling about this issue right now. Um, And I think, uh, you know, for me, the goal is to get people into housing. The real question and the challenge that we have as elected city council people is where do we have the resources to do this right? You can have the outreach, uh, but you need housing options in order to be able to move people from encampments uh, out of encampments and into housing. And I think the more resources that we can get into this, the better the better our city can be. So, Councilmember, if I were if I were someone that lives in your district and said, why can't you use the LAPD to do what Mitchell Farrell did at Echo Park Lake, what would you say? You know, I think the, the, the question for me is really looking at the history of how we have used LAPD to address homelessness in Los Angeles. 
We have for many, many years not invested in services, not invested in housing. What we have done instead is to move people from one side of the street to another or from a sidewalk to a jail and where, you know, eventually they come back to the sidewalk. We've done that for a really long time. And frankly, it hasn't worked. So I think what we're doing now for the first time, thanks to Measure H, thanks to Prop HHH, thanks to new investments from the mayor's budget, what we're doing now is investing in those things that can actually end homelessness, not just move people around from place to place in the city. And that's, you know, I'm excited to see that continue to happen. When you consider issues around homelessness, especially in your district, how much do you consider some of the concerns of residents who who some you know don't feel safe living in neighborhoods that they've lived in for for decades? I, I, you know, safety concerns are incredibly important. And, you know, we have partnered with LAPD to make sure that we're addressing issues related to crime that are connected to encampments. And I think that that is very important. I will say that, you know, the, the, for us uh, as a council district, what we are really focusing on is to make sure that the missing element in that work is being fulfilled, which is our focus on outreach services and housing to get people out of encampments and into homes. And that that is really where my energies have been focused. And that's where I'll continue to focus. When can d- residents of your district expect to see some changes <laughs> or at least some some progress or action on some of the things that uh, you've been talking about? You know, I- I'm hoping that uh, that we can see them relatively soon. I think what is hard is that I don't know how to Um, interpret the end of COVID and the uh, removal of the eviction moratoriums. I think there's a real question mark around how people have coped through this period of COVID and through this period of real economic uncertainty. My fear is that things may get worse before they get better, but I do think that they will get better. And I think that with this kind of sustained work and resources and focus, that that it will get better. So Uh, I just want to also point out that... um, there was a recent count uh, that was done. LASA suspended its homeless count this past year, um, but r- residents in the Hollywood neighborhood used the same methodology and did a homeless count, and they found a 12% reduction in homelessness in the Hollywood neighborhood just you know this year, which means that the rise in 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 um, shelter. At, of, of through Project Roomkey, the kind of efforts that people have been making over this past year that that to me, it seems like things are working. And so I think if we can push ahead, if we can continue with these efforts at the scale that we've been doing it and actually do more, we will see results. That's L.A. City Councilmember Nithya Raman of the 4th District. Councilmember, uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, about that budget, that budget that Eric Garcetti proposed this week, we're going to have uh, Libby Denkman join us uh, to break it all down when Take Two continues. Stay with us. On inheriting. To Tuan Trong, his home country is a lost country. What's keeping you from going back to Vietnam? The communists. Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't stand to see them. But his son Bao longs to live there, the very country Tuan fled. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. Listen to Inheriting from LA Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LAS Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Let's go cruising to the park, cruising after dark, let's go out, slow it down to five, on 
back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Amy Martinez. Mayor Eric Garcetti's budget proposal announced earlier this week calls for a slight increase in the amount of money going to the Los Angeles Police Department. This after the city council voted to cut the budget last year in wake of the protests over the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. The roughly $11.2 billion budget allocates more than $3 billion for the LAPD, but also some alternatives to armed police response for nonviolent 911 calls. For more on what's going on with that budget, we have with us KPCC's politics reporter, Libby Dankman. All right, Libby, first off, uh, can you break down the numbers for us? Sure, A. So this gets a little bit complicated, so bear with me. City budget analysts argue that this budget actually represents a 5% reduction year over year for the LAPD, LAPD because they are comparing the new proposal to the 2021 adopted budget. Now, this was the plan Garcetti put forward before George Floyd was murdered and local protests erupted over that and other police killings. Obviously, a lot has happened over the past year. Hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets and Garcetti and the city council faced a lot of pressure to act. Last summer, they went ahead and cut $150 million from the police budget, promising to invest the money in black and brown communities. Most observers would say the city cut that money from the police budget and going forward, that is the new baseline that future funding decisions will be judged on. By using the adopted budget from last year as a baseline instead, the city appears to be trying to roll back the clock. So our newsroom and others are considering the post-George Floyd funding level as the city's baseline here. And with that in mind, the numbers show that the mayor's new budget plans a $41.9 million increase for the LAPD in the fiscal year beginning July 1st. So when it comes out in the wash, I mean, I thought LAPD's budget would be facing a cut. So why the increase? Yeah, especially in this political climate, yeah. eh? Um, there are all kinds of possible reasons here. In a briefing with the city budget planners earlier this week, a reporter asked about the rise in homicides in the city so far in 2021. They are up almost 28% from this time last year, and the number of shooting victims has risen 80% in the same period. So if the police union and department leadership go to the mayor's team and say, we need this money to keep people safe, that's really hard for a politician to ignore. Of course, civil rights groups and activists say the only solution is to divest from traditional law enforcement to fund programs that will prevent violence by building a stronger community, diffusing violent situations before they start, that kind of thing. About that $150 million that the mayor and the city council cut from the budget, from the police budget last year, I mean, was it put toward other community programs as they promised? So yes and no, and uh, maybe soon it will be put towards those community programs. It's uh, been a bit of a, a twisting and turning story here, A. Eh? Uh, some of the funding has already been spent. $10 million was, was dedicated to summer youth programs for kids in disadvantaged communities. $50 million went towards the city's pandemic-related budget shortfall, including staving off city worker furloughs. Now, last December, Mayor Garcetti issued a rare last-minute veto rejecting City Council's spending plan to distribute the remaining almost $90 million of that money. The council wanted to use it on a range of projects in all 15 council districts, but the mayor said that they were too focused on infrastructure work like road improvements and not the kind of racial justice and income inequality goals that the original cut was meant for. Last month, the council, the council came back to override the mayor's veto, but they also adopted a lot of the changes he had asked for. For example, Councilmember Curran Price announced a guaranteed income pilot program for single parents in his district in South L.A. and downtown. And the council earmarked $14 million for policing alternatives, including community intervention workers. So it's been a journey with that money, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, wow, it is a winding road, that budget. Now, it also calls for $19 bucks for initiatives to help the city better respond to calls where individuals are, are having a mental health crisis. Uh, tell us uh, more about that. Yeah, the mayor is calling this turn or therapeutic unarmed response for neighborhoods. Now, my colleague Robert Garova has reported on this for LAS.com. Uh, this is an umbrella term that includes a combination of initiatives, including $10 million for alternative mental health crisis response, $2.2 million going to these therapeutic transport 
pilots, which are vans that have clinicians uh, going out countywide to respond to nonviolent mental health calls. That program has already existed, but this budget includes the the money to fund it. Um, And $3 million for a pilot program in Venice and Hollywood that would send unarmed specialists to respond to crises involving unhoused Angelinos. Uh, The mayor also pledged to increase the city's investment in the gang reduction and, and youth development program, which is called GRID, that contracts with community intervention workers instead of police officers to try to break cycles of violence in neighborhoods. Now, these are the type of programs that community groups have been clamoring for, but $19 million, A, in a budget that's almost $11.2 billion is not going to satisfy most activists who want to truly divest from law enforcement. It's like a drop in the ocean uh, in, in terms of budget. Uh, now, for yeah. yeah, for most of the last 12 months, it's really been doom and gloom for city finances. But now the city's getting a, a big, giant uh, infusion from the Biden administration. Uh, big picture, Libby, what does the federal relief money mean for Los Angeles? No question. Garcetti and other local leaders are breathing a sigh of relief due to the American Rescue Plan the president signed last month. The city of L.A. is in line to receive $1.3 billion, which is allowing the mayor to restore pandemic-era cuts to most city departments. The homelessness budget growing to $1 billion is probably the most visible element of the mayor's budget. I know you guys have been talking about that this week. Uh, He's also planning to use almost $700 million to refill the depleted rainy day funds that city leaders were forced to almost completely drained during the height of the pandemic. Garcetti's also eyeing other ways to squeeze the most out of this funding, including help for 100,000 families with emergency rental assistance, uh, $25 million to prim- uh, primarily uh, give grants to restaurants and small businesses who have been hurt by the COVID-19 pandemic, and a $24 million basic income pilot program that would be the largest test of its kind in the country. And a, I mean, just taking a look back at this last year, tax revenue plummeted because of the pandemic. LA was furloughing personnel, scraping the bottom of the barrel of reserves, and for the first time in history, borrowing money just to cover daily expenses. The scrimping and saving meant cuts to all those departments, renegotiating labor contracts to delay the planned raises for police, firefighters, and civilian workers. I mean, all of that has just completely changed now with the federal bailout. One more thing really quick, Libby, considering the budget and, and you know, you, you look at these things all the time, you know, we're seemingly getting better when it comes to vaccinations and, and, and positivity rates with the coronavirus. Do you think budgets, I mean, in, in L.A. and just in general, will settle down a bit for because city governments have, you know, aside from how they're spent, they've, they've been through the ringer this past year. They really have. I mean, there's been a lot of soul searching and a lot of painful decisions. I mean, last year, Garcetti called the budget that he had to roll out while the pandemic was ramping up a document of our pain. I mean, you know, refilling the reserves is one way to kind of even out some of these ups and downs. But um, and if the uh, if the pandemic continues to ramp down, as it seems to be doing, if the vaccine efforts are successful, things may even out. But I think the lesson with this last year is you just never know. You can think that you have the most reserves of any time in city history, and they can be basically wiped out with one major disaster. So it's really been a lesson in, you know, the best laid plans um, often are not enough. That is the great Libby Dankman. Libby, thanks. Thanks, A. The L.A. neighborhood of Pacoima is in the northeast San Fernando Valley, surrounded by the 5, the 118, the 210 freeways. And Pacoima is packed also with gravel pits and recycle centers. And those two factors means that there's a lot of pollution, some bad pollution. Some of the worst in L.A. is in Pacoima. We'll hear how decades of this is being felt today when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Flash flood warnings across Coachella Valley. The journalists of L.A.ist work for you. I'm Aaron Stone, the climate emergency reporter at LAist. Desalination really should be considered as a last resort. I bring you the information and connections you need to understand, cope with, and prepare for the changes caused by the climate emergency. Potential for what's called land spouts, which are basically like mini tornadoes. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Beside me, here beside me, 
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. This week, we are delving into the environmental risks the Northeast San Fernando Valley neighborhood of Pacoima faces today. The predominantly Latino neighborhood is one of the most pollution-burdened communities in all of California. And our series is part of Covering Climate Now, a global collaborative of more than 400 media outlets focusing attention on the climate emergency. It's all pegged to Earth Day, which is, of course, today. Now, to get a sense of how this pollution has impacted its residents, KPCC's Caroline Champlin met up with a family to hear what it's like living with poor air quality each and every day. You know how it is when your family member comes home and you recognize them just by the way they come in the door. Aaron Ortiz always knows when it's his older sister, Amanda. She's always coughing. Like, that's how you know she's home. She'll come in, she'll cough her way to my room. She coughs when she's sleeping. For most of Ortiz's life, he remembers his sister, Amanda Rivera, having asthma. It's part of her identity, he says. She can't laugh without coughing either, like... It's normal to me, like, on a day-to-day basis, but, like, actually, like, really, really thinking about it, it, it hurts talking about it. <laughs> I sat down with Ortiz and his sister at their house in Pacoima with their noisy pet cockatiel in the background to talk about Rivera's condition. She brought out a tote bag full of asthma equipment, inhalers, and other respiratory devices. So this is my preventative. This is what I do every morning, every night. This is the rescue inhaler. So if I'm having shortness of breath, I'll take this. With insurance, that daily use inhaler costs 20 bucks. Without it, it's $450. Rivera recently got a couple inhalers through Medi-Cal, which she's using sparingly. It's supposed to last you a month, but I kind of cut it in half just to kind of make it last a little longer because if I don't have that inhaler, then it'll be really bad. When Rivera was diagnosed with asthma as a kid, everyone told her she'd grow out of it. Instead, she says she grew into it. It just got worse as I got older. For two years, though, Rivera's asthma did get better when she lived in Indiana for school. I remember telling my mom, like, I don't cough as much anymore. Like, I don't know what it was. When she came back home to Pacoima, so did the asthma. Rivera's not sure if the local air quality has anything to do with it. But her brother Ortiz, who recently got his degree in environmental science, is pretty convinced. This neighborhood in Boyle Heights has some of the worst pollution in all of the state, actually. Airborne pollution settles in the valley, like liquid in a bowl. Multiple studies have found links between that pollution and respiratory problems. Rivera doesn't hold it against her hometown for likely causing or at least exacerbating her asthma. Her brother, though, definitely does. It's like this weird pain and like anger, knowing that like you or your families are statistics. Like it's so weird. It's like dehumanizing and like it hurts. Ortiz started volunteering with the local environmental justice group Pacoima Beautiful, in part to do something about it. They sent him and others out on bike rides with handheld air quality monitors to find high readings of fine particulate, which can cause asthma. The goal is to identify the biggest local polluters. I joined him on a recent survey ride around the neighborhood. We rode down a bike path on San Fernando Road, along the airport, and next to a Metrolink train. Ortiz's air monitor syncs up with his phone and color codes our path as either green, healthy, for low particulate, or yellow, orange, and red, unhealthy, high particulate. So writing down that, I don't know what was happening, but it was pretty high, so that was not good. Next, we turned down a street with recycling centers, auto shops, junkyards. Then around the Sun Valley Generating Station, a power plant, which leaked methane over the last several years. And finally, back home to Ortiz's house to look at the data and debrief. So this is where it spiked around the industry. We had a little bit of orange right here. I think it was kind of by the aluminum. Did you smell it? Because I remember smelling something right there before we turned. We found a whole block color-coded yellow, moderately unhealthy for sensitive groups. I mean, this is all right around the plant. Mm -hmm. That's only one data point, of course, but if there's more of it, this evidence is what Pacoima Beautiful plans to use to make a case for shutting down that gas power plant. That is a long-term goal. In the short term, Ortiz wants to share the information he's collecting with his family and the community. I wouldn't even have noticed these things because, like, everyone here is just so used to it. Like, they don't think anything of it. We're just here. Like, this is our home. He wants people to know that they're part of their environment, even when it's something you can't see. I'm Caroline Champlin.
All right, so you just heard some of the effects of pollution in the L.A. neighborhood of Pacoima. That's in the northeast San Fernando Valley. Coming up next, we'll talk to some of the residents that are doing something about it, trying to clean up what they've been breathing in by using politics in that fight. That's next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. How to LA is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm a resident right there, Richie Valens. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts, May Martinez. And our series on Pacoima continues as we highlight environmental hazards the community has experienced over the decades. The predominantly Latino neighborhood is one of the most pollution burdened in all of California. Now, the series is part of Covering Climate Now, a global collaborative of more than 400 media outlets focusing attention on the climate emergency. And it's all pegged to Earth Day, which is today. So with that, we're going to go back in with local environmental justice group Pacoima Beautiful, which you heard Caroline Champlin mentioned in her piece earlier in the show. Andres Ramirez is the policy director. The organization's lead project planner is Dora Fritz Armenta. And Gabriel Carrillo is a community organizer with the group. Now, I spoke with uh, the three of them earlier this week, and Gabriel started us off by explaining how Pacoima Beautiful got its start. So Pacoima Beautiful was actually founded in 1996 by a group of moms. Every morning when they would walk their kids to school, they would see the, the trash, the pollution in the streets. They realized this is not something, this is not a place we would like to have our kids grow up. So they started doing just community cleanups, just little things, gathering people who were willing to make a small change. Eventually, it snowballed into something much bigger, which is the Pacoma Beautiful we know today. Now, before we get into all the work uh, you all are doing, I want to start with a snapshot of Pacoima. So, Andres, let's start with you. Paint us a picture of Pacoima today. It's a community found in the Northeast San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. There's a long history of being surrounded by toxic facilities, like there's a domestic airport, there's landfills, the freeways, there's a gas plant, a gravel pit. Um, so all these facilities create a perfect storm in terms of impact on, on a particular community, both environmentally and health-wise. Pacoma has some of the higher rates of asthma and, and lung disease that you, that you can find in all of Los Angeles County. And all that was really magnified with COVID, right? We find it a correlation between the high number of cases and deaths that have occurred in, in Pacoima during this COVID pandemic with the impact of, of these toxic facilities. And Andres, when you mentioned freeways, I, you know, I, I lived in Panorama City for a while. That area right up there, it's not as if the freeways are just free flowing and you don't have to worry about all of the fumes. That is a choke point in the part of the San Fernando Valley where there is tons of traffic all the time. Correct, correct. There's actually the, the intersection of three freeways, the 118, the 5, and the 210. All these not only have regular traffic of people commuting, but also very heavily commuted by heavy diesel trucks, which really cause a lot, a, a lot of impact on the air quality. Now, Dora, walk us through some of the environmental issues that Pacoima deals with today. You know, on top of COVID, we've also seen issues around the Valley gas plant um, where there was a leak for for years and, and the community didn't know about that. And there was also the, the plane crash at Whiteman Airport that, you know, not only are community members kind of, you know, shocked, you know, they, they constantly hear the, the noise pollution and the pollution that just comes from those small planes. There's, you know, the, 
everything else, the the freeways and, and the car dismantlers. Yeah, and Dora, I mean, you, you walk around that neighborhood of Pacoima and you mentioned all of the different things that are that are there, that uh, you know, our, our businesses there, that our industries there, but people have to breathe in the after effects of all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, as an organization, that's what we focus to to change, to let folks know about how we can enact um, change around some of these issues, whether it's rallying kind of our community base to make sure that that we're asking um, the Valley Gas Station to to make changes to move towards uh, green energy. You know, we want to make sure that this is a community that folks can raise families and and that you know has a brighter, greener future. And that is, uh, what are some of the sources of pollution in Pacoima? A lot of it is the emissions from from the the facilities, right? So, like Dora mentioned, Whiteman Airport is a domestic airport that runs twenty four seven. There's the emissions that come from the planes. They're small planes, but still, it, it's regular emissions. They also have a fueling facility and an oil recycling facility on on site. The Valley Generating Station is is um, emitting, you know, greenhouse gases from from the natural gas burning process, um, including methane. And, and gases that are invisible, but but constantly being being ex- exposed. And then there's also the landfills, right? Where a lot, a lot of the a lot of the the waste from the county is brought and incinerated, and all those fumes are being put out into the air. On top of that, of course, is the regular emissions from from the exhaust from the cars, like 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 we mentioned earlier, right? There, there's the regular traffic of people from this choking point of all the freeways out here in the valley. And specifically from the diesel trucks, right? The the com- big commercial diesel trucks that emit heavy amounts of, of contaminants into the air. Gabriel, what concerns have community members expressed when it comes to these sources of pollution in the neighborhood? The biggest concern for most community members has been the particular matter in the air. A lot of it recently because of the valley generating plant, but there's also the emissions from the cars. And the fact that all of these folks that live in this area are what you what people would call essential workers. They're constantly in danger of these particular matters. It's not like they really can leave the area. They don't have time to go elsewhere or move elsewhere. So the air is the biggest concern for most people. Andres, as policy director for the organization, what are some of the changes that you're currently advocating for? Well, one of the major changes really is shifting the the city and uh, and county from burning fossil fuels to clean energy future. Really taking taking the lead from what the rest of the country is doing or the rest of the world is doing, frankly, right? Um, in terms of combating the impacts of climate change, the city of Los Angeles has recently passed the LA Green New Deal, which creates climate goals for the city. There was a recent study called the LA 100 um, study that that identifies 2035 as the year that LA can go 100% clean energy. These are the type of policies that we're really advocating for. On top of also actionable items like closing the gas plants in our community, you know, closing toxic facilities and and, and thinking of, of better, cleaner alternatives for their community. Andres, I would suppose that, say, when big ideas such as uh, the Green New Deal and, and the different versions of it uh, that are around uh, the United States, that those kinds of deals have an eye toward communities like Pacoima, because sometimes communities like Pacoima are overlooked in these overall solutions. Yes, there's a long history of, of communities like Pocoma being overlooked. You know, I, I think a big question is this idea of equity really has come, has come to the forefront. And it's really tied in also to the conversation of racial justice, right? The racial injustice in, in the society that we live in right now, how it manifests in terms of how the city has been planned, right? And where toxic facilities are and, you know, how they impact in our community. The, the burden on, on, on communities like Pocoma, and it's not only Pocoma, right? It's communities of color throughout. Los Angeles region, like South LA, like Wilmington, like Boyle Heights, El Monte, that are that are working class communities of color that are surrounded by toxic facilities. And you know, our our push is that whatever solutions are created, prioritize these communities first, because it's not only a, a health and environmental impact, but it's also a, a, a economic impact, right? If there's an opportunity to shift to a new industry that can create jobs. We really believe those jobs should be concentrated in the communities that were impacted first. This is an opportunity to start breaking down those those cycles of, of poverty that, that have really burdened a lot of our communities. We're speaking with Pacoima Beautiful's policy director, Andres Ramirez, uh, lead project planner, Dora Fritz Armenta, and uh, community organizer, Gabriel Carrillo. Dora, what about you? What are some of the projects that you're working on and, and, and some of your goals there? 
Pacoima Beautiful is working with a group of nine partner organizations that make up the Green Together Collaborative. We received funds from the Strategic Growth Council um, and it was a $23 million grant that we received focused specifically to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in Pacoima and in Sun Valley. So these grants fund six projects and three transformative plans. And this project really is just aimed to bring green infrastructure to the valley and just ensure that we have community involvement throughout the entire process of the grant. Some of those projects include installing 175 solar panels on single-family homes and planting over 2,000 trees in, in the next five years. So it's it's real changes we can see in the community that in the long run are going to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. Dora, I know that uh, you want to make uh, Pacoima a lot more walkable, make the pedestrian experience more enjoyable. What's that experience like right now um, when it comes to access to sidewalks, trees, and greenery in Pacoima? Well, the area does not have a lot of parks, open space. It doesn't have a lot of trees. And so one of the projects, the funded projects is part of the the Green Together Collaborative. Um, We have one that's looking at pedestrian mobility improvements, which look at those things exactly. As as you mentioned, it's it's bringing wayfinding sides, uh, bike racks, seating areas, improvement to ADA ramps, things of that nature, because um, parts of Pacoima and Sun Valley don't have sidewalks. They don't have trees, you know, on the sidewalks. And so bringing these things not only just improve the area visually, but also bring a lot of really great benefits from, you know, having cooler summers because the valley does get really hot <laughs> yeah. and just having, um you know, pedestrians have a more enjoyable experience trying to get to and from their destinations. Gabriel, tell us now about your work. So I'm actually the lead on the Pacoima Electroshare program. It's a unique program because it's the first completely solar-powered vehicles in the LA area, as well as the first EV cars that are available to the community here in the San Fernando Valley. The vehicles are actually very beneficial to the community because uh, being a community full of essential workers and low-income families, it is very affordable. It uses uh, clean energy, and there are no emissions released from the vehicles. What kind of an impact could that mean, Gabriel? We're t- we talk about how, you know, the area of Pacoima with all the freeways and all the just the, the exhaust fumes just spreading everywhere. To have this kind of project, Electro Ride Share, what kind of an impact do you think it could make on emissions in Pacoima? It would reduce the amount of smog in the area. The particular matter would be reduced. Just overall cleaner energy across the board. People would be able to travel further out. And if we can get the particular matter, just to smog all of that down, which is the main concern for a lot of these folks, then it would just be easier to live in these communities. No more fear of getting asthma or other, you know, related illnesses. All right. Now we've talked a lot of uh, what needs to change, some goals in mind as well. So Andres, I want to ask you, what changes do you think uh, really need to happen? What are some actions that you want to see from local officials to make some of these uh, goals become reality? One thing that, that we realized, and, and it's come up in our conversation before, right, but the prioritization of, of frontline communities like Pacoma is very important. Um, the history of, of our city or leaders is always the haves keep on getting first dibs when it comes to, to resources or, or new technologies. And really to, to, to move the needle when we're talking about climate impact, it really has to be the communities most impacted that need to be prioritized. And that's something that's important. And then I think the other piece is understanding that in our communities, environmental issues are, doesn't, don't happen in a silo, right? And, and there's multiple factors that must be taken into account, like housing, like jobs, transportation, et cetera, right? Parks, like, like was mentioned. These are all things in our communities for, because of years of disinvestment or, 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 or lack of care, that need to be redressed, that need to be fixed and, and, and prioritized. And I think that's 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 the important piece that we want to see that we're going to keep pushing our decision makers into doing, right? Of do the right thing and do it first in the communities that have carried the burden the longest. Gabriel, what about you? How do you make sure that Pacoima's needs become prioritized? I think the biggest thing here is to make sure that we as a community are on the same page. We all have the same voice. We all have the same concerns. So we can get together and just voice it uh, at these forums and other things that the city is constantly uh, having. Then that's the way that we can do it. Have either of you, Andres and Gabriel, heard from any officials about uh, some of your some of your goals? Uh, who are you talking to right now? We actually have um, strong leadership in, in our community for the first time in a long time, right? The, the current council president for the city council, Nuri Martinez, um, represents one of the districts in, in our communities. And I think that's something that I do want to bring up, right? I think 
for us, it's not only about Pacoima, right? We actually really feel that these are the issues for the whole of Northeast San Fernando Valley, including Panorama City, Arlita, Sun Valley, Silmar, right? And, and I think that that's, 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 that's an important piece because the other person that we're engaged with a lot is our county supervisor, Sheila Kuhl, who represents not only the valley, but also a lot of the, the coastal communities and, and the west side. And I think that's where we see that the differences in terms of how investment is being played out, right? So there are definitely um, championing a lot of a, a lot of these issues and uh, helping us move on this, right? They've been leaders when it when it's come to addressing like the Valley Gas campaign, or or, or even now with the White Man Airport, right? And, and as well as advocating for the the, the bringing um, investments to the community. I'd also like to. Um, Say the other decision makers that we really have a great relationship with is Councilwoman Monica Rodriguez, who has actually written um, policies at calling for the Shatana White Man Airport, considering all, all, all the dangers and impact it's had on the community. So we really do have strong leadership from, from the local level all the way even to, to the federal level. I mean, the new senator, Padilla, is actually from Pacoima, is actually from, from this community, right? And has roots with Pacoima Beautiful. And, and, I, and I think that, that that's an important connections that we're trying to make to leverage to make sure that our communities are prioritized. Our communities are, are, are being transformed in positive ways. All right. Last word goes to you, Dora. What are some uh, immediate and long-term actions that could address the environmental risk Pacoima experiences today? I think a lot of that that work, you know, we're, we're already doing a lot of the, the work that we do around policy and, you know, a lot of the work that that we do with our community, that ensures that we kind of start moving the needle little by little. But, you know, just this grant alone in itself is a huge win for the San Fernando Valley. Um, yeah, you know, our project is specifically in Pacoima and Sun Valley, but, you know, those benefits, I, be- I really believe, are going to be felt in other areas nearby. We've been talking to Andres Ramirez, Policy Director at Pacoima Beautiful, Lead Project Planner Dora Fritz Armenta, and Gabriel Carrillo, Community Organizer with the group. My thanks to all three of you. Thank you for having thanks us. For having yeah, thank you for having us. And to learn more about covering climate now, you can go to LAS.com to see more of our coverage and also hashtag Climate Emergency Week for stories from the U.S. and around the world. That's uh, LAS.com, L-A-I-S-T.com. All right, if you missed any part of Take Two, just head on over to wherever you get your podcasts, and there we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. That's at A. Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. Bye. Um, um.